it has been Fourth of July weekend, and uh, we've been celebrating this weekend. I do want to, you know, even everything that's been going on in our nation, we've had a lot going on uh, between uh, politics around the coronavirus, uh, as well COVID nineteen, as well as. Uh, race relations in the United States, and it, it can feel like our country is is falling apart. And yet, I still think, you know, based on international travel, as I've traveled around the world, I am still happy I live here in the United States. This is still a good place to live in the world, and we have been we have been cared for and provided for in ways that many other parts of the world do not see. Uh, the kind of uh, wealth that we have, and there's a lot more in going on in the world that's actually uh, worse than what we're experiencing here in our nation. So just want to throw that out there, that even as you may feel like our nation uh, it may be a little bit hard to celebrate, we still live in a great place, and we should be thankful for the nation that we live in and the system of government that does work when justice truly is blind. Um, the problem is, is not just the system, it's the people in the system. But that's another sermon for another day. Uh, anyway, today I do want to talk a little bit about uh, civil religion, uh, national religion, uh, as well as uh, Christian religion, because I think Revelation actually takes us there today. And it takes us there constantly through the whole book. Uh, I was reflecting back on some of my time interacting with government, and uh, I've been asked in different settings to come and pray as the to be uh, the, the, the God spokesperson, so to speak, in a government uh, capacity. And I remember one couple times I've been asked to come to the state senate uh, in, another, in Maryland and uh, give the invocation or the opening prayer before the senate debated bills and argued bills. And so it was a great opportunity for me to take my daughters with me and they get to see how the government, the system of politics works, how government works. And it was a great education for them to come along. They got to get out of school and go with me down to the state house and they got to sit on the floor of the, the Senate and watch, front, got a front row seat to the debates and the bills that were happening there. And so, but before I would go in, I, before I even got there, they would ask me to write out my prayer. And there was a whole list of guidelines, a full page of guidelines that I needed to follow when I got there and went in my prayer and I had to submit my prayer for review to make sure I wasn't saying anything out of line. And one thing that was very clear to me is don't say the name of Jesus. Don't mention Jesus in your prayer. And this was in the guidelines. And of course, I just created a very uh, appropriate professional prayer for that context and was able to go in there. And I was glad to go there and get to know, uh, connect with people as well. But even as I got there, I remember the president of the Senate uh, coming up to me in chambers before we got out on the floor, and he said, now look, just don't mention Jesus. Again, this whole thing about not mentioning Jesus came up. And I was like, yeah, I'm good. I can, I can handle it. I realize we have multiple faiths here, and I can respect that. And then the story was relayed to me that the reason that they, they were really adamant about this was because one of the senators uh, on the floor would, if she heard the name of Jesus mentioned in the prayer, she would bang on her desk and she would bang her desk on the, on the Senate floor whenever to drown out the name of Jesus. And I thought about it. I was like, okay, I, I won't do it. I won't offend anybody, so forth. But I thought about this idea of, of pastors coming and I'm actually glad that they asked me to pray. I'm glad that they're at least acknowledging God in some way. But as I reflect on it more in other contexts I've been in, Really what this comes down to is what we call ceremonial deism. It really is just part of the ceremony of our government. Uh, and it really begs the question, do we, are we really worshiping God? Are we really turning to God? Is, is the Senate chamber actually looking to God for guidance? 
Or is it more just ceremonial, right? And I think it falls more into the category of ceremonial deism. The other thing I get and the impression I get from my perspective as a pastor going into these contexts is that oftentimes, it's because I'm sitting there in the room, I can see the, the, like everybody gets real quiet for the prayer. And then after the prayer, they just go and they argue. And they, it's, like, it's like the prayer didn't even exist. It's like the prayer isn't even a part of what they're doing. And they separate it out and categorize it out. And I almost feel like in some ways, it's kind of like coming to the pastors and saying, would you bless what we're doing, pastor? Would you come in and just bless our government? Would you just come in and bless what we're going to do anyway? Whether you pray or not really doesn't matter. It's really, we're going to do what we're going to do. We're going to argue what we're going to argue. Your prayer will have no effect on what we decide. We just want God's blessing on what we're going to do, on what we decide. Now, I asked that question for you today, and we're going to ask this question again at the end. But what, what is worship about? Is worship just about asking God for God's blessing on our lives, or is there something more going on? But here's a question for you to chat about. Might even create an argument this morning. I don't know, but it's a controversial question. And that question is, what is the role of God in government? Like, what is the relationship between God and worship of God and our faith and our system of government? Is there a relationship there? Is there some connection there? I know we've debated over the decades, you know, prayer in schools, the Pledge of Allegiance, uh, whether, you know, all these things that are going on, these ceremonial aspects of our public life and our governmental life. And so we think about these things and we've debated this. And I think part of the fear from the church perspective or from the Christian perspective is we're afraid atheism is going to take root in our country. And I would not be for that at all, obviously. But I think in our fear of atheism, we also get distracted from something else. And that's what I would call syncretism or accommodation. And chapter four of Revelation is actually challenging us on this challenging us not to accommodate nationalism or nation worship, right, or sacrifice for the nation. We'll talk about that's what worship is, to sacrifice for, but to do that for God. And sometimes it's, it's I think what we miss sometimes is that we can actually take our, our belief and our, our, our trust and our worship of our nation and mix it in with our worship of our God. And we syncretize it up some ways and we get these two places overlap. Chapter 4 challenges us and the whole book of Revelation actually challenges us not to do that. So let's take a look at the book of Revelation today. Because really, remember, Revelation is a book of worship. We mentioned that in week one. It's a book of worship. And so the question we have to ask ourselves and a key question for us is about worship. Worship. Who or what are we sacrificing for? We're going to, we see that in chapter 4 and throughout the book of Revelation. But worship is really about, what am I sacrificing for? Because whatever I'm sacrificing for, my time, my energy, my money, that's what I'm worshiping. That's what I worship. And uh, so we think about that as we go through this. Now, the reason I say the book of Revelation is a book of worship because chapter 4, right? Think about all the worship music that has been created and written and uh, for, out of chapter 4 of Revelation. Uh, you may have heard of a hymn, an older hymn called Holy, Holy, Holy. That comes from Revelation. That, that hymn is based on the book of Revelation. Uh, there's, another, uh, there's a contemporary song by Chris Tomlin called We Fall Down. That comes out of Revelation chapter 4, the, this image of people falling down in worship before God. Uh, there's also Crown Him with Many Crowns, 
All hail the power of Jesus' name are both based here in Revelation. And then again, one of the most famous pieces of sacred music, Handel's Messiah. The words, the lyrics of that are based in Revelation and the worship in Revelation. And so think about all this music that has been created, worship music been created from the book of Revelation, and particularly chapter 4 and chapter 5 that we're going to look at next week. So we're taken in, and John is taken in to this throne room. Now, the reason I bring up civil religion is because what's happening in the throne room is very similar to what would happen in the throne room of the emperor, the Roman emperors, the Caesar. And so when in the throne room, the Caesar would be there and there would be attendants, uh, a certain number of attendants would be gathered around the, the emperor and they would sing praise or hymns to the emperor, announcing him or praising him or uh, worshiping him. In fact, remember Domitian asked for people to worship him. And then the other thing that was happening was lesser rulers or lesser kings would lay their crowns before the emperors, basically saying, we submit and surrender to your rulership and we are going to pay homage to you. We're going to follow your will and your ways and we're going to let you be the leader of our kingdom, our lesser kingdom. We now lay our authority and our power down before your kingdom and your power. And so this is the image of the throne room. The same imagery is used in the book of Revelation as the throne room of the emperor. There's also what John does as well is brings in some Old Testament as well. The, the, the story of Exodus is, is, is reflected here. The, the teachings of Daniel and Ezekiel, the prophets, are brought into this to help us interpret this as well. So I want to kind of give a little bit, of unpack some of the imagery here in Revelation chapter 4. There's a lot of symbolism going on here, and what John is trying to do is bring us into the throne room of God in heaven to give us an, a picture of that. And it's really indescribable. We can't actually describe. John's trying to describe something to us that's indescribable. So, but here's some things to kind of keep in mind. First of all, there are two things, colors and numbers, used throughout the book of Revelation. So let's take a look at the colors that are used here. First of all, color of the rainbow is mentioned here. And this represents the radiance of God. You know, I, th I look at art, uh, a lot of art in uh, religious art and so forth. And a lot of times God is always pictured with kind of like a bright white light or a halo or a golden halo around it to represent the radiance of God. But here it's a rainbow, which means it's the complete spectrum of color is reflecting God's radiance. All of the spectrum is reflecting God's radiance, not just not just the white light, but all the colors of the rainbow. And so that's reflective in the, in the throne room. Also this image of white, the color white. White means uh, victory or purity. And so those are things that are uh, reflected here in the, in the robes and things that are being mentioned here throughout Revelation. That's what white represents. And Revelation is a book about victory, uh, victory over evil, uh, victory over sin and death. And we'll see that as we go through this book. And then the other, the last color I want to mention is gold. Gold is symbolic of incorruptible wealth. We know what wealth and power that corrupts, but this gold symbolizes incorruptible wealth, incorruptible power, beauty, royalty. And so again, that's being reflected in this text through the colors. These are symbolic of attributes of God and worship of God and the throne room. We also have here numbers, and we're going to see these numbers again in the book of Revelation. But one number here, we see four creatures, and four is, uh, represents universality, universality or wholeness of creation or all creation. 
So number four, the four living creatures represent all of creation worshiping God. So I want you to get that picture in mind. All of creation is worshiping God and following God, even if we're not as human beings. And then you have seven lamps or spirits. Seven is a number of completeness or wholeness or holiness, so to speak. And so God is holy, and so the number seven comes up. And then you have 24 elders, which represent the 24 priestly orders set up by King David in Chronicles, in the book of 1 Chronicles, uh, chapter 4, I believe. And so this idea is that all, not only are all creation worshiping God in holiness, in wholeness, but this other idea is that the whole kingdom of priests, remember chapter 1, we're a kingdom of priests, all 24 orders of the priesthood are worshiping God, are in the throne room and represent. So this is representative of all creation and all of the priesthood worshiping God in the throne room in the same way that the emperor would have been worshiped in the first century. So that's the picture of the throne room that John is giving us. So the question is, is why is, and the other thing that John is saying to us, not only is it indescribable, remember, John's trying to describe something that's indescribable, but the other thing to notice is that it's unceasing worship. That right now, that's what's going on in heaven. What John is giving us is a vision of what worship is happening in heaven right now, even as you, are, you and I are here on earth, as it is in heaven on earth, right? And so what John is saying is this is what worship looks like. It's unceasing. It never stops. And I love something that Michael Gorman, I've been reading his book on Revelation, says about worship. He says this, The worship of God is the heartbeat of the cosmos. Even when we humans on earth do not see it, participate in it, or value it. Think about that. That worship in the throne room of God, chapter 4, is the heartbeat of the whole universe. Think about that. And whether or not you and I acknowledge it, whether you and I know about it or even worship or believe in God, that's happening. And here's this idea. Could that be sustaining us today? Could what's happening, the worship in heaven, be a part of what's sustaining all of us in the universe today and the whole universe itself? That's just mind-blowing to me to think about the whole universe being worship, worshiping God and being sustained by the worship of God. That's what John is communicating to us in chapter four. It's not about worship of the emperor. It's not about worship of the nation of Rome. It's about worship of God alone and total whole worship of God, true worship of God. Now, I don't know about you. I've spent a little bit of time going to online worship services. Can I confess something? I get distracted when I'm online worship. You know, somebody will text me, so I look at my phone, I get distracted by that. Or maybe somebody sends me a video or a meme, and so I'll go over to that even though I'm online worship. And there's so many distractions when you're online. Maybe you're distracted right now. In fact, if you're still in the kitchen making breakfast, come back over to worship. Come on over. So uh, I know how easy it is to get distracted. And I read a statistic this week that 48% of church people, people who regularly go to church, have not participated in online worship in the past four weeks. So something's going on with us. We are distracted from worship and really centering our lives back on God. And that's the concern even during this time of online worship is that maybe we're losing some of that connection. The problem with that is something that Eugene Peterson said, and I love the way he put it. He says, Failure to, failure to worship consigns us to a life of spasms and jerks. 
at the mercy of every advertisement, every seduction, every siren. If there is no center, there is no circumference. Let me say that again. If there's no center, there is no circumference. People who do not worship are swept into a vast restlessness, epidemic in the world, with no steady direction and no sustained purpose. I love that Eugene Peterson is epidemic. (laughs) There's another epidemic going on that was going on before COVID-19, and it continues to go on today, and that's the epidemic of not having God at the center of our lives. And I hope today that you are putting God at the center of your life, even as you're online or maybe you're replaying this later. Take this moment to say, I'm going to put God back at the center of my life. I'm going to enter into the throne room of God and make my worship of God alone. And I encourage you to do that. You know, and what does that look like in the throne room? What's the activity of worship? We actually see that from the 24 elders. I want to remind us here in the last verse 10 and 11 what the elders are doing. The elders are falling down, and here's what they're doing. They fall down and they lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, our our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Notice that what the priests are doing the 24 orders of priests, the kingdom of priests, you and me are to be doing is to fall down and lay down our crowns. And I get this image that the priests are actually maybe even laying down prostrate prostrate before the, uh, the Lord there in the throne room, and they're taking their crowns off. They're symbols of wealth and they're symbols of power and they're symbols of rulership and they're taking that and they're laying them down at the feet of God and the throne room. That that's what it looks like to worship God and God alone, to surrender power, wealth, everything that we have, our whole selves. Notice the body, the whole body is involved and everything that is possessed. That crown represents all our possessions, all our, all our wealth, all our power, and we're laying it before God. That's what worship looks like. That's what true worship looks like here in chapter 4 and in the Bible. So I think about that. Are we willing to do that? You know, we go back to that question, what are we sacrificing for? Because priests offer sacrifices. Worship is about what am I going to sacrifice? These priests are sacrificing their crowns, their dreams, their purposes, their wills to God's will. Are you willing to do that? Am I willing to do that? Am I willing to offer my whole self to God? All of me, all my, everything in my checking account, all, everything in my savings account, everything on my calendar, everything that I have going on in my life, all my success, all my awards, all my degrees, all my uh, trophies, everything about me. Am I willing to lay it all down and say, God, you're worthy of it all? You're worthy of every bit of it? Can you say that today? It's challenging, isn't it? Because if you really look at, you and I look at our lives, we say, well, I sacrifice for God some, but I really sacrifice for a lot of other things as well. Maybe you've been sacrificing for what we call the American dream, right? That's your crown. Or maybe you've been sacrificing for work and making more money or sacrificing to get ahead in some way. Or maybe you've been sacrificing for somebody else in your life to get their attention, 
I don't know. But who, who are you sacrificing for today? Because who we sacrifice for is who we worship, who has value and meaning to us. And the throne room reminds us that God is to be the center of our universe and our life and our world. So, you know, with it being 4th of July weekend, I did a little U.S. history uh, research this week, and I kind of reminded myself of some things in U.S. history. And I go take us back to the, what I talked about a little bit at the beginning, because we're really being challenged here in chapter 4 to say, are we going to worship God or are we going to worship our nation, right? Are we going to worship an ideology or worship the creator of the universe? And so we are challenged in that way. And I was actually going back and I was learning a little bit about the Pledge of Allegiance this week, you know. Uh, the, the Pledge of Allegiance was actually created by a socialist minister uh, in the late, uh, at the turn of the, the 20th century. Uh, and so the socialist minister put together this Pledge of Allegiance and it was to be used on Columbus for Columbus Day celebrations, not 4th of July or other occasions, or it wasn't even in schools or anything like that yet. It was actually to celebrate Columbus Day. And again, that's another issue that we can talk about later. But so that was the origination of the Pledge of Allegiance. It did not contain the words, the United States of America, and it did not contain the words, one nation under God. It was really just about bringing everybody and creating everybody equally uh, in, in, the, uh, in the pledge. But the idea was that the U.S. history would be doing this, and so that this pledge would be created. Now, in 1942, what happens is the words, the United States of America, get added in 1942. So what's going on in U.S. history in 1942 that would make us add the words United States of America. That was World War II. And again, this is where flags start to be brought into churches. They'd already been brought into schools for Columbus Day celebrations, and the pledges got brought into schools. And actually, they sold a lot of flags as well. So it was part of flag sales as well in the United States. So that came in. And then 1942, the words, those were, were added. But the next edition was One Nation Under God. Those words were not in the Pledge of Allegiance until 1954, and there was another war going on in 1954. We know it as the Cold War. There was a battle happening in the world between two competing ideologies, capitalism and communism. And so when the president added One Nation Under God, what is going on is that the, what's going on there is that this phrase is interjected to say, God, capitalism (laughs) is what we're about, right? God is blessing capitalism. And some historians associate this and say that it's one of the things, one of the politics behind this was to say, God, will you bless capitalism? Will you bless what we're doing as a nation and not the communists? Will you not bless them? And so this idea of one nation under God was added to stress this idea that God was blessing us more than anybody else in the world. And I see that. I've seen that in our own faith. I've seen that in our own Christian walks. I've seen that in our own nation where we have this belief that somehow God is blessing us above every other nation. But that's not what Revelation says. It's not what Revelation says at all. In fact, Revelation, we just saw described in the throne room, people of every tribe, every nation, every language in the throne room of God. Not one nation, every nation. And that God wanted every nation not to bless every nation, but for us to get in on what God is doing. For us to not simply ask for God's blessing, but to say, God, how can we get in on what you're doing in the world? Don't just bless what we're doing. How do we 
follow you, God? How do we help, how do we surrender our lives to your will, not just you blessing our wills? That's different, isn't it? That's a different stance. That's a different position before God. That's a different attitude of the Christian heart before God. That's what true worship looks like. And I hope that you experience that in your own life as well. So I would invite you, you know, what is the crown that you need to lay down today? What is it that you need to give up to worship God today? What's getting in the way of you making God the center of your world, your life today? And let's pray. God, you have called us to lay down our crowns, to lay down our power, our wealth, our wills, and surrender them to your authority, to your power, to your glory, because you're worthy. You're the one that gave us life. You're the one that put us here on this planet. You're the one that created us and created the universe. And we simply come to you today and we say thank you. Thank you for the place we live in. Thank you for the nation we live in. Thank you for the, the world that we live in. Thank you for creating us and fearfully and wonderfully made we are in the image of God, all of us. And so thank you for that. And pray, God, that you would help us to get, not just simply come to worship to ask for you to just somehow bless what we're already doing, but that we would surrender ourselves to what you, your purpose for our life today. And Lord, as we come to this table of bread and cup, may they be for us the body and blood of Jesus Christ, so that when we get up from this table, as we take bread and take cup and we repent of our sins and receive forgiveness for our sins, that we would be renewed and restored to be your people who truly worship you in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray today and pray that you'd pour out your Holy Spirit on us today as we gather and on these gifts of bread and cup today as we gather together today.